we're, we're effectively breaking into the story of Gideon here after Gideon and his little army of basically routed a massive army of the Midianites. And as we'll see, chapter 8 is about the pursuit um, afterwards. So this is like the aftermath of a big battle. And uh, we'll see what we can learn today from this. So let's uh, read God's Word together. Judges chapter 8. And uh, we'll, we'll read it all. It's not that long of a chapter. And then we'll, we'll dip in and out of it as, as, as I'm talking in a little while. Now, the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. But he answered them, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiazah? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread, they're worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, do you already have the hands of Zebra and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, just for this, when the Lord has given Zebra and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return... In triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Nobar and Jugbihar and fell upon the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Heraz. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted man? He took the elders of a town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the terror of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zebra and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those are my brothers the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jetha, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jetha did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said, come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. 
So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camel's necks. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on the camel's necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Jeroboam, that's another name for Gideon, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash, in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal-Bareth as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, for all the good things that he had done for them. Well, we'll get into that narrative. There's a lot in there. Now, for some reason this week, this is an unusual introduction to a talk. Um, I'll warn you now. For some reason this week, I've been unable to get an old song out of my head. Do you ever have that when you, a song's going around in your head? In 1963, a man called William Stevenson wrote a song called It Should Have Been Me. Do you know it? It Should Have Been Me. The song is effectively about a lady who is broken-hearted because the man she loves marries someone else. It's been sung by at least three different artists over the years, including the wonderfully named group Gladys Knight and the Pips. I mean, who came up with that name? Gladys Knight and the Pips. And often, with this song, over the years, there's been a music video that goes with the song, and what you get to see is the singer dressed as the bride sitting in the church, watching the wedding, and singing, it should have been me, it should have been me. I, I personally think, though, that the best and most hilarious cover of this song was done in the BBC comedy series, The Vicar of Dibley. And I'm going to show you a clip. Um, to set the scene, Dawn French plays Geraldine Granger, who is the vicar in The Vicar of Dibley, and a new, very handsome chap moves into the village and they very quickly fall in love 
But then she sees him with another woman. And the other woman is actually his sister. But Geraldine is heartbroken because she thinks he's got another secret girlfriend. And in this scene, this is not like a real scene. This scene is a kind of daydream about the imaginary wedding of her handsome boyfriend with this other woman who she thinks is his girlfriend, it turns out, to be his sister. And she hilariously sings, it should have been me. I'm going to have to put this front light off, is that okay? Walking down the aisle And as he passed me by He turned to me And gave me a smile the, the preacher asked the baby silence, please if any objections to this wedding, speak now or forever, forever hold your peace. And I stood up and said it should have been me. I think I've ever started a sermon with the Vicar of W before. I think it's just hilarious, that isn't it? It should have been me. That was uh, her her plea, wasn't it? It, it? There is a happy ending if you've seen if you've seen it. She does marry the man of her dreams in the end. But the, why, why has that song been going around in my head? I, the reason it's been going around in my head is because I've been preparing to talk to you today from this chapter, and. Um, it's been on my mind, not so much because of the marriage connection. And I, I, want, I want you to get this. It's the phrase, it should have been me. Often in life, I, I, I think you would agree with me, we have a very deep desire to get recognition, adulation, the respect of other people. And sometimes we might then have the disappointment of someone else getting what we thought we deserved. We don't get the credit and the lack of admiration, respect, often can make us deeply sensitive, even very angry. And we're kind of secretly inside thinking, I want to punch someone in the face. It should have been me. It should have been me. I want to suggest to you that this can go on at a much deeper level too, though. And um, I think there's a sense that this idea 
is, is perhaps the very root and foundation of evil itself. Lots of people ask the question, many people over the years have grappled with the question, where does evil come from? In the end, I want to suggest to you it comes down to this. Always looking for creative ways to communicate theology. Learning from the Vicar of Dublin, it should have been me. Listen, God created perfect creatures to love and glorify him. And one of those angelic beings one day got up one day and thought... Why should God get all the glory? I want some of that for myself. And so that angelic creature began to sing in his heart, it should have been me. And a devil was born. And that same devil, when God created this world and humans, this same devil comes into that good creation to persuade humans to sing the same song and the devil comes to our first parents and says God doesn't love you really what you need to do is go your own way you deserve all the credit why should God get all the credit you can do it all on your own strike out be independent who needs God anyway it's a very powerful idea isn't it And it's a very destructive idea. The story of this world is really the story of human beings expressing their independence, their ability, their desire to be their own saviors and kings. Seven billion people on this planet all singing, it should have been me. It should have been me. In the last couple of weeks, then, we've been looking at the story of Gideon. And we met him fiercely in chapter 6 as the reluctant warrior. And then last week, we were exploring the unlikely battle in which Gideon's 300 men helped to rout what we read in chapter 8 was an army of nearly 150,000 men. It's interesting that it talks about 120,000 swordsmen. During the night, they didn't know what was happening and started stabbing each other. And somehow, these 300 men, with God's help, routed the Midianite enemy that had been oppressing them for the previous eight years. If you've been following the book of Judges, what you expect in chapter 8 is what actually comes at the end in verse 28. Because the cycle in the book of Judges up to this point has been God's people go astray, they forget God, God hands them over to their enemies. After a while, they cry out to God, we're really sorry, please help us. God raises up a deliverer, smashes the enemy, and then there's peace in the land for a few years before the cycle repeats. But when you get to chapter 8, there's a little bit more. What you're expecting to read is problem solved. But actually there's a shock here because the battle carries on. And this time, unlike the other times, we get to see something of the flawed leadership and character of the hero judge Gideon. I think the author of Judges is trying to show us something of the tragic, gradual, downward cycle 
And we'll eventually see, as we read in chapter 8, that the people end up worse at the end of chapter 8 than they were at the beginning of chapter 6, which is amazing. God has delivered them, and they end up being worse at the end than they were at the beginning. Let, let me show you, first of all, that there's a number of deliberate contrasts that the author makes between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Um, first of all, there's a contrast in the geography. Um, oh, there you go. It should have been me. should have been that slide, shouldn't it? It should have been me. I'm going to have to pull the light up again. I'm very sorry. Is that better? Is that even better? Okay. Does this work? Okay. I don't want to give you a lesson geography, but this, this is probably quite important. That's a really bad... Map to, that looked really good on my screen. This is a map of Israel. In that there at the top is the Sea of Galilee. And at the very bottom is the Dead Sea here. And down the middle of the country runs the River Jordan. There is a faint blue line down the middle there. Okay? All of these names are the tribes, the regions of Israel. So Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, West Manasseh, East Manasseh, Gad, and you've got the Ephraimites over here. Midian and the other eastern peoples all over here. In chapter 7, the battle happens where that little circle is there, okay? And the red line is where the Midianites ran after the battle. They run down here along the River Jordan, across the River Jordan, and they come to Sukkoth and Peniel, and eventually down here to Karkor. The contrast that the writer is trying to make, though, is in chapter 7, everything happens on the west side of the River Jordan. All the battle happens on this side. In chapter 8, everything that happens in chapter 8 is on the east side of Jordan, over here, following this red line. So there's a geographical contrast, okay? Okay. But more than that, there's a contrast. I should have done a map that was more contrasty, shouldn't I? The other contrast here is that there's a massive contrast. In chapter 7, God wins. In chapter 8, God is hardly mentioned, and it's Gideon that wins. There's two different battles, chapter 7, chapter 8. In chapter 7, it's all about God winning. In chapter 8, it almost seems like Gideon takes the law into his own hands. And he wins. He seems to start so well in chapter 7. And as we'll see, it seems like the power and the success of it all goes to his head. And he changes and he ends up in a really bad place. In chapter 7, he's motivated by humble faith in God. In chapter 8, he's motivated by brutal revenge and empire building. On top of all that, I think the author deliberately writes chapter 8 in a way that builds the tension for us in the narrative. Anyway, there's basically, let's get back, here's chapter 8. Chapter 8 basically splits into two sections. There's a short term and a long term. The short term is the pursuit after the battle. That only lasts, 
I don't know, 24, 48 hours. And that, that's really verses 1 down to 27. But then in 28, there's a second section that is more to do with the long-term aftermath of what happened after this battle. You get that? So there's the pursuit, and then there's the aftermath. But in both these sections, there's, it's almost like the author deliberately lets us glimpse Gideon start well and then kind of go pear-shaped. So, first of all, we see Gideon's diplomacy with the Ephraimites. We'll, we'll walk through this in a minute. I'm just giving you an overview. And then we see his brutality with the men of Sukkoth and Peniel. So he seems to start well and then go off the rails. But then in the next section, the aftermath, we see something of his humility. The people want to crown him king, and he gives a brilliant answer. And then he goes off and behaves like a king. We see his humility, and then we see his pride. It's a very messy picture. So in these two sections, Gideon seems to start well and then kind of end not so well. He loses the plot. He's diplomatic and then brutal. He's humble and then proud. It seems like the author is deliberately creating for us this messy mixture of good intentions and big mistakes. And I think that's the story maybe of chapter 8. Let's just walk through then these two sections in the time we have. The pursuit, first of all. I have to say, I do have some sympathy with Gideon here. They've been up all night. They've engaged in an unbelievable battle. Gideon is tired. His men are tired. They've experienced, on the one hand, this massive success after eight years of being oppressed. They've defeated the bully at last. They seem to have won. But in this immediate period after the battle, the, the first main battle, and the Midianites begin to run and retreat back to their home country, Gideon faces two issues and they're both issues that I think leaders can often face. And it's worse to face them when you're feeling tired. As a leader, Gideon here has won a great battle. He has effectively defeated the bully. And what does he get? In the midst of his tiredness, he's been up all night, he's had nothing to eat. The first things he gets is criticism thanks a lot Gideon and the second thing he gets is a lack of support from people who should have known better do you, do you aspire to be a leader it's a tough it's a tough gig being a leader Gideon here gets it in the neck from both directions after winning so we've got to have some sympathy with him he smashes the Midianites and there's always someone who's not happy, isn't there? Always someone who wants to just stick the knife and have a little dick. There's always people who would rather watch than get involved and help. I think Gideon here must have been tempted to smash his own people, let alone the Midianites. Ephraim. The tone of the Ephraimite criticism is, you called us too late. 
Just uh, look with me again at verses uh, 1. Well, well, sorry, verse 1. Yeah, it's just verse 1. He's, ju- he's absolutely shattered. They've routed the Midianites, and the Ephraimites send a message. Why have you treated us like this? What's all this about? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? The Ephraimites are singing. What song are they singing? It should have been me. Why didn't you send for help from us? Going into battle on your own. Who do you think you are, Gideon? Ephraim was one of the largest tribes of Israel. In many ways, after the tribe of Judah, Ephraim could be seen as the next most important tribe. We saw it on the map, a massive area. A great battle has been won, and these guys are upset, and the author underlines it. At the end of chapter, uh, verse 1, the author underlines it by saying, and they criticised him sharply. That, that's a nice way of saying that they were sticking the boot in, isn't it? The tribe of Ephraim was not part of the initial call to arms in chapter 6. Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, those northern tribes that were near to where Gideon lived, they all joined in. The tribe of Ephraim, further south, wasn't part of that initial call. They were only called at the end of chapter 7, I think it's, is it in verse 24? When the Midianites started to run away, they ran across, went down the Jordan, and Gideon caused the Ephraimites to come and block off the water. That's basically what he's doing. He sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. What Gideon's saying is, if we control the river, we've got them. What I need is for you Ephraimites to come and give us a hand now in the aftermath to stop them escaping. And they do. And eventually the Ephraimites catch two of the military leaders Oreb and Zeb, and they kill them. But some of the army does escape. 15,000 of them with the kings escapes back to Midian. All the Ephraimites can think of is it should have been us. Instead of being glad, they're mad. One writer I came across says, they are a self-centered and fractious lot, easily offended, and with an inflated estimation of their significance within the nation. Even in victory, Israel remains her own worst enemy. We already heard Gideon in chapter 6 say that his clan was the weakest in Manasseh. And that he was the least in his own family. This episode here is like the really strong big brother complaining afterwards to the little weed of a little brother. No gratitude, no thanks. All they can think about is themselves. They they felt that they'd missed out on the glory of victory. And they're not happy at all. What they want is recognition and praise and admiration. I wonder, given their size, you know, that if they had been called by Gideon, I'm not sure that they would have submitted to him as a leader anyway. And more than this, 
if they had got involved, wouldn't they have proved God's fear that God expressed to Gideon? The reason that God reduced the army down to 300 was why? So that you wouldn't think that you'd done it. That was God's fear. I don't want you to boast that you've done this. I want you to know without a shadow of a doubt that this was God who did this. If the Ephraimites had been involved, it would have only proved what God said would happen true. Gideon seems very diplomatic, doesn't he? In verse 2, hey, what have I accomplished compared to you? Man, the gleanings of your grapes are better than our full harvest, mate. <laughs> it's like, we're tiny. You're the, you're, the, you're the man, Ephraim. You're the guys. And God gave the military commanders into your hands. What did I do compared to you? And it says at the end of verse 3, their resentment against him subsided. What they wanted was praising Gideon really does a great job of massaging their egos and he calms them down. He satisfies them with his praise of them. And yet something isn't quite right, is it? He doesn't, nowhere does he mention the fact that God had called him or that God had clothed him with the power of his spirit he makes no mention to the Ephraimites here that God had intended for the battle to be won by a few so that they would give all the credit to God. It's all very diplomatic, but not quite the full picture, is it? You get that? Let's um, move on to the other guys. If Ephraim were complaining that Gideon, you called us too late, mate, these other guys in, oh, there's the map again, Sukkoth and Peniel, their complaint was, your corner's way too early, mate. <laughs> Why is that? Well, the Midianites are running away. Gideon and his exhausted army are giving chase. They come to Sukkoth, and Gideon says to the elders of town, we need some food. We're absolutely shattered. We haven't eaten all night. We've been in a massive battle. We're doing this for you, don't forget. Give us some bread for my man. And the men of Succoth, they're on the very eastern flank of Israel. They are the most exposed position of all. When the Midianites every year come up from the east, where do they come to first? Peniel, Succoth, and then they cross the Jordan. When the Midianites come next year, these towns are going to get it in the neck first and they're frightened I think the tone of what they're saying to Gideon is if you haven't quite caught the leaders yet you know what's going to happen don't you they'll regroup next year they'll come back and anybody who's helped you they'll be for it come back when you've got the heads of the kings in your hand and then we'll help you you can kind of understand their reluctance. They're, they're really wanting to sit on the fence and see whether the battle is fully won. If the Ephraimites wanted recognition 
and status, and that led them to be critical. The men of Succoth here are wanting security and safety, and it led them to be unkind, uncommitted, even unsupportive of their own Israelite brothers here. But something's not quite right here either. Gideon could have said, listen guys, I understand where you're coming from. That was me like three weeks ago, cowering in a wine press. These are big bullies. This is a tough battle. But listen, God has called us. We've almost won. And we're convinced that God's going to help us finish the job. Come with us. Help us. But he doesn't say any of that, does he? He just goes bananas with them. He goes absolutely bananas. We might even say that Gideon doesn't treat them as he himself has been treated by God when his faith was weak back in chapter 6 and 7, God came alongside him, encouraged him, rather than rebuking him. God gently built up his faith. Gideon does nothing here that's sensitive to help them. He just becomes brutal. I want to just put over all of this the idea of Gideon's frustration at not being respected. Gideon here seems to me to be beginning to boil over at the lack of support, the criticism, the respect he thinks he deserves. And I I, I think it makes us wonder whether his diplomacy with the Ephraimites was more to do with the fact that they were too big and he couldn't really strike them because he would have lost. But when he comes to the little man, who he thinks he can like, then he go, he's, he's only diplomatic when he feels he can't win. And when he feels like he can win, he just smacks him. God had been with him and given them an amazing victory. And now he's frustrated that people are not giving him the respect he thinks he deserves. His response could have been, look at what God has already done. He's with us to finish the job. Don't doubt God. Instead, he takes it all personally, and he's effectively saying here, how very dare you doubt me? After all I've done for you guys. When I come back, I'm going to whip you. Just get ready. That's his response. He doesn't say to them, don't doubt God. He's offended that they've doubted him. Later on, he does come back. And the author tells us in verse 16, after he finds out the names of all the elders, he takes the elders of the town. and, And the author says, he taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. How did he teach them a lesson? By stripping them and whipping them with thorn bushes. He brings them all outside, takes off their clothes, and basically whips them to tear their flesh with thorn bushes. 
There's no mention of God. He's just mad with them. And there's more. The next town down the road, Peniel or Peniel, also refuses help in the same way. He threatens to come back and knock their tower down. But in verse 17, he gets carried away with that. He pulled down the tower and killed the men of the town. You kind of get the sense that he's just in a rage. The green mist has come down. He's out of control. This is not the humble Gideon of chapter 6 and 7, relying on God by faith. And the author introduces a new piece of information in the narrative here as well. In verse 18, Gideon turns to the kings that he's now caught, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he says to them, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? That's a new piece of information. Tabor was very near where the first battle was in chapter 7, but quite near to Gideon's home. And I think these two kings answer Gideon quite sarcastically. Remember, they're kings. And they say to Gideon, yeah, they were men like you, each one with the bearing of a prince. Literally in the Hebrew, that is, with the bearing of the son of a king. I, I think these men are hinting at the fact that we're kings. Who are you? You're not a king like us. And Gideon replies, these were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. And you get the sense that there's a bit of humiliation, power language going on here, because he asks one of his sons to kill them. That's his way of counting their sarcasm. I'll show you who's the boss here. You call yourself kings. You're, you're criticizing me for not being a king. He calls his son over and says, you kill them. And the boy won't do it because he was afraid. And even then, in the face of death, Zebra and Zalmona said, come on, do it yourself. You call yourself a man, as is the man, so is his strength. And Gideon has to step forward and strike the fatal blow. I think that the way the narrative unfolds is to show us that Gideon, he, he has started well, humble faith in God on the west side of the river. The reason he's giving chase now is because he's consumed with revenge and anger and the God-appointed army that was meant to liberate Israel has kind of become his own little personal vendetta. It, what started out as humble faith became, as others wound him up, became personal and brutal. There's actually a little hint of it in chapter 7. Do you remember in chapter 7, Gideon goes into battle? Just look with me at verse 18. Well, verse 17, he says to the soldiers, watch me, follow my lead. When I get to edge of camp, do as exactly as I do. And then in verse 18, chapter 7, when I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. I didn't notice that first, but there's a little hint there, isn't there? That Gideon's thinking, this is for God. And it's a little bit for me too. Do you get that? 
for the Lord and for Gideon. Uh, even there, there's a little hint of it there. Gideon's thinking, why should God get all the credit? It should have been me. I know God did it really, but I had to fight as well. God gets most of the credit. Can I not have a little bit? Even there at the beginning, there's perhaps a little hint that he's really wanting people to follow him. He wants to share the credit with God. He's not quite able to give it all to God. And when the unfair criticism comes, when the lack of support comes, his true colours begin to rise to the surface and we begin to see that he too is singing in his own heart, it should have been me. It should have been me. Do, do, Do I need to pause and apply this? Oh man, this is close to bone, isn't it? Never mind the world outside. How often does this happen in churches? We begin things and we're trusting God and there's humble faith and before you know it, it becomes a pet project and it's like, did you hear what they said in that meeting about me? And before you know it, people are fighting and it should have I'm not going next week. It should have been me. This kind of thing is part of human fallen nature, isn't it? When we're, we're not wired to give credit to God, like Gideon, we seem to want a slice of it ourselves. Let me show you what happens in the aftermath. That's the first section then. The aftermath. This begins in verse 28. In in a way, the Israelites make the same mistake that Gideon has already made. Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. It's a great phrase, that, isn't it? Gideon dare not raise its head again. Like a wounded beast, they've killed the bully. And during Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. It's, it's, it's amazing. But here, here's, here's the thing in verse, sorry, sorry 20, 22. The Israelites come to Gideon and they say to Gideon, rule over us. And this is not just Gideon. This is start a new dynasty. Your son and your grandson, you now are our king. Why? Because you saved us out of the hand of Midian. The attitude of the Israelites is, he won, so let's put our trust in him. Gideon's answer at first seems to be very good. Verse 23, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. You can't trust me as your saviour. You can only trust God He's the ultimate saviour, judge. But there's something not quite right even here, isn't there? Why did Gideon not say, I don't want to be king over you because I'm not the one who rescued you from the Midianites. It was God who did that. He kind of gives a good answer, but it's not quite the whole story, is it? 
And that's proven by the fact that he then immediately contradicts himself. He doesn't want to take the title of king, but he absolutely wants to behave like one. I do have one request. Give me an earring from your share of the plunder. And he ends up with 1,700 shekels of gold, clothes, ornaments. And what does Gideon do? He makes the gold into an ephod. That's a strange word. God told Moses to make an ephod. It was kind of a way for them to make decisions and know what God's will was. There was only one. Gideon seems to just like think he can go to B&Q and buy an ephod and make another. He, he, he basically melts it down, makes his own ephod. Where does he put it? In his hometown, Ophra. It seems like what Gideon wants is for people to come to him. Not go to God, but come to him. I'll give you the answers to disputes and problems. I'll tell you what God's will is. And it says there very sadly that all Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping the ephod that Gideon made and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. He, he, he seems to not want the title of a king but then he behaves like one. The, one writer says the irony and perversion of Gideon's actions here shouldn't be overlooked. Instead of glorifying Yahweh who had clothed him with his spirit and properly worshipping him in a victory song as Deborah and Barak did in chapter 4 and 5. Gideon creates his own image and clothes that image with pagan materials so that the people will worship that instead of God. It's like Gideon here is singing, it should have been me. More than that, like a king, like the Canaanite kings, he takes many wives, he has a lot of children. There's almost a sense that he sees himself even above the law of God given to Moses. He's become his own boss. And he even takes a Canaanite concubine from Shechem. And in verse 31, she gives him another son. And he names that son Abimelech. Do you know what Abimelech means? Abimelech means basically, my dad's the king. He has an illegitimate child by a Canaanite woman and gives the name of the child, my dad's the king. He doesn't want the title of king, but he sure wants to live like a king. Maybe that demonstrates his perception of his own status. The Bible tells us here that the land has peace for 40 years, but it's a kind of messy, compromised peace. Gideon is meant to lead them to God. And he tries to in a way, but all the while he's actually saying, it should have been me. The people sell themselves to Gideon and his homemade DIY ephod instead of worshipping God. One writer puts it very cleverly, thy kingdom come has become my kingdom come. And again, isn't this true? Even in our churches, we say we want to honour God, 
But what we really want is for other people to honour us. How is it possible for Gideon to say one thing and yet live another thing? I, I think the truth is that Gideon knows good theology in his head but he doesn't quite allow it to shape the way he lives his life. There's nothing wrong with this theology really in verse 23. But the way he lives betrays the fact that he doesn't really believe that. I want to uh, just overlay... Oh, hold on. Have you done it? Can you just uh, flick it on, Andrew? Maybe we've lost our connection. Doesn't matter. I wanted to overlay onto this the idea of the danger of success. I, I think in this story, Gideon seems to have found success hard to handle. And we see the trajectory of how he changes. As he climbs the ladder, he forgets God. In chapter 6, he was conscious of his weakness. He worshipped God. There's a sweetness and a humility about him being utterly dependent on God. Utterly grateful in a way that God was willing to use someone like him. One writer says the contrast between the man we are introduced to in chapter 6 and the man we see as judge of Israel at the end of chapter 8 is stark and alarming. The first is a reluctant conscript who deeply distrusts his own competence and is only gradually persuaded to believe God's word and act upon it. And the second is an empire builder who, if not setting up a dynasty, is prepared to create his own memorial and pursue advantage for his own family rather than for the glory of God. In his victory, he seems to forget God. It was God who'd called him. It was God who'd strengthened him. It was God who equipped him. It was God who reassured him. It was God who'd been with him. All the way through, it was God's grace. And here now, he's craving the adulation and trappings of living like a king. It seems to me like the worst thing to happen to Gideon was for him to win. Would you agree? The worst thing for Gideon was that he won. He can't cope with winning. He can't cope with success. It goes to his head. And he can't cope in chapter 8 when he doesn't get the credit he thinks he deserves. And he can't cope with the success either. Not getting the respect he feels he deserves makes him mad. And when he does get the adulation he craves, it just makes him feel proud. I think as Gideon sings, it should have been me, it always seems to end for him, maybe this is true for us, in either congratulating ourselves when we do a great job or loathing ourselves when we don't 
or when we don't get the credit we feel we deserve. When we're successful, we big ourselves up. When we fail, we descend into self-pity. That seems to be the story of Gideon's life. And the legacy is so tragic, isn't it? After his death, the people that he tried to serve immediately returned to Baal worship. This is the guy who'd smashed his dad's altar. And by the end, it's worse than it was at the beginning. How, how can we apply this to our own hearts this afternoon? I want to close with this thought. Gosh, it worked. I want to suggest to you that Gideon's inconsistency is really designed to point us to Jesus. I, I think the Bible here is so utterly realistic, isn't it, about human nature? It's realistic about leadership failure. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on this uh, section says this, the shadow of inconsistency and disappointment frequently hangs over God's servants. And Gideon was hardly a rare exception. This is not to excuse the sins or errors of leaders of God's people, but let it temper our expectations, let it cushion our despair, and let it lift our gaze to the real leader of God's elect, who does not disappoint, in whom is found no sin, and against whom no charges can be brought, we will never find perfection of office except in our Lord Jesus Christ. And realising this can save us from cynicism that may come from the disappointing servants of Christ. I, here's where we'll close. I want you to realise this afternoon that Christ is the only one who doesn't sing that song, It Should Have Been Me. He is the greater Gideon. He is the only one in history who is not self-centered. His instinct is not to grab and grasp power like the ancient devil once did. His heart is instinctively generous and self-giving. When God says, who's going to go? Jesus is saying, ping me, ping me, I'll go. Here am I, send me. He's the one whose heart just kind of overflows in self-giving rather than self-grasping. Even though everything is his by right. As the son of God, he gives it all away for others. But it's even more than that. He doesn't just give it away to others who deserve it. He gives away what he has for others like Gideon, like me, like ye, who don't deserve it. As he dies on the cross for our sins and our selfishness, not his own, he is really saying to us, Jesus on the cross is looking you in the eye and saying, it should have been you but I'll take it so that you can go free. We are guilty and Christ comes to take our guilt away. And now, even though we are fallen and broken, we are loved with an everlasting love. 
Christ is therefore the only one who can free us from the desperate, constant need to be recognized and adored and respected because he recognizes and loves us everlastingly in spite of our brokenness. He is the one who can liberate you and I from the life that only revolves around ourselves. We don't need to swing between the extremes of self-love and self-loathing anymore. It isn't all about me. And it isn't all about you. It is actually all about him. His grace. His beauty. His love.